I'm Sarah Williamson, and this is Going Long with FCLT Global. On this show, you'll learn what it means to be long-term from the top minds in global business and investing. Leaders from companies and investment organizations join us to discuss how they are leading their teams for the long run on issues including capital allocation, risk management, climate change, and sustainability. To learn more, visit our website at fcltglobal.org. So welcome. Mark Weidman is Senior Managing Director at BlackRock, Head of International and of Corporate Strategy. He's a member of the Global Executive Committee and is charged with shaping the firm's strategy and global marketing and leading operations in EMEA, Latin America, and Asia Pacific. We're pleased to say that Mark recently joined the board of FCLT Global. BlackRock, of course, has been part of FCLT Global's mission to rebalance capital markets since our earliest days at, as a focusing capital on the long-term initiative. So welcome, Mark. Well, Sarah, thank you very much. And thanks for everybody to tuning in today and uh, hearing us talk about what we're seeing at BlackRock and around the world about long-term investing. Right. Thank you. So, you know, the, the funds that BlackRock manages on behalf of its clients and their beneficiaries are a significant part of the capital markets. So can you just talk a little bit about how you're thinking about incorporating sustainability into the investments of these assets under management, given their size? So let's start off with uh, the founding proposition for us around sustainability, which is that sustainability is an investment proposition. We start with the premise that it's our client's money, not our money, and that we have to act in their long-term interests. And what that has led us to is the realization and in fact, a real pivot in our energies toward putting sustainability as part of how we manage money for clients. It means that having an appreciation of non-financial risks is arguably as important as having an understanding of financial risks, or certainly has to be a part of the overall process. And it comes in a couple of different ways, or actually multiple different ways, that affects how we work with clients. Um, at the first is a baseline, ESG risks, environmental, social, and governance risks, uh, are now fully integrated into all of our alpha strategies or active strategies and how we pick securities and actually how we make private investments all over the world. The second part is when we help clients build portfolios, um, our default position today is that they should take ESG-oriented strategies, which means strategies that actually consciously bake in higher risk factors around ESG risks, um, especially, and where the most, climate, most interest from clients is, it's climate risk. Um, and then third, it's about stewardship. And as part of our indexing business, we have large resp responsibilities on behalf of our clients to talk to, and in cases, some cases vote, shares for companies in which we invest in our clients' behalf. And in those, in those companies, we actually are saying to those companies, what is your sustainability strategy? How does your strategy map against a set of external risks, especially climate risk? So if, as you think about climate risk, let's take the, the alpha portfolios and the private portfolios first, because obviously those are ones where you're um, selecting which companies to invest in um, by yourselves, rather than, you know, sort of in conjunction with a, with a client who is determining a benchmark. Um, are you th thinking about, uh, we, we've sort of thought about these in a number of ways. Obviously, divesting is one way, getting out of the, the bad stuff. Um, another is 
uh, sort of trying to get ahead of the curve, price in carbon, even when it's not being necessarily priced in, in the market. And another is kind of investing in things that are catalytic, that are trying to be innovative, that are perhaps, you know, re really trying to invent the thing or, or come up with the solution that changes the amount of carbon actually um, in the in the air. How do you think about the, the various uh, balance, if you will, between the brown side and the green side, uh, particularly where you've got that ability to um, select securities? So, um, I think that's a great framing, Sarah, about how you uh, how one can look at the various choices one has. From a perspective as an alpha investor, as an active investor, um, I'd say that uh, our approaches to sustainability come in multiple flavors. At the minimal level, it's looking consciously at the risks that every company, every security presents from an ESG perspective. And again, that's most tangibly and consistently around climate risk, where we've been able to apply the most rigor using our Aladdin platform, um, to analyze individual securities and their exposure to future physical risk, like floods, rising sea levels, storms, but also to transition risks, including regulatory change. So that's one area was just like table stakes. And I think really for a modern asset manager, that is just table stakes. The second and part is when you take strategies that actually start to say, um, we're gonna screen out securities. I think that's a little bit old school uh, as an approach. Uh, that now you might take out a category, for example, like thermal coal, uh, where we see really almost no investment case for that, uh, for, for those companies. We think they are very quickly on the route to a, a, a difficult end. Um, on the other hand, um, in the vast majority of the real economy, what you'll see are companies that have um, in a given sector, a wide dispersion of how prepared they are for the future. So in the hydrocarbon sector, you will find some companies that have uh, really thought hard and prepared themselves for a world which will become much less friendly to carbon production. And then you have other companies that are much less prepared. Now, and we ask ourselves as that part of that, um, which one should we buy? And some of that, sometimes the answer is actually can be, it is part of a, being a consistent, sustainable investor, actually can be to actually own something that's a little less prepared, but it's gotta be, really cheap. More prepared, uh, you could, don't require a lower discount rate. And so that's leading to a significant reallocation of capital already in the markets. This year, for example, we've seen a real outperformance of companies at the sector level that are more ESG prepared and oriented versus their less uh, ESG prepared. Uh, now, broadly, sustainable strategies have outperformed standard benchmarks dramatically this year. Some of that has to do with hydrocarbons underperforming as a category. But even within every sector, what we have found is the more sustainable organizations that have taken ESG risk much more seriously with a long-term view on making money have actually outperformed. So that's a last second part. And then the last part is helping clients pick strategies that really skew towards ESG, including impact strategies that are actually going to have long-term uh, aspirations to both have direct impact on financial returns, but also for, the, for the, the client, but also have a direct measurable output in the world. And the interest in that is enormous. And interestingly, our own impact public equity strategy it has outperformed public its standard benchmark by 1,100 basis points, 11% this year, which just shows that that substantial reallocation of capital we've anticipated is actually happening. And do you see that capital allocation, reallocation happening around the world fairly consistently, or is it in more 
partly and more in some countries than others, and then particularly in light of the the um, DOL's ruling recently on ERISA plans and and having to have those be uh, pecuniary factors, as they call them, um, are, are people seeing this now as pecuniary factors and being able to do that, or is, is this something where the realloca reallocation is happening away from away from those pension plans? So the big change for the last couple of years, almost the shock, is that sustainable investing since let's say 2017, especially around climate risk, uh, but I'll come back to what's happening in 2020 with the social social concerns has gone from being a, so, so that kind of sustainable investing and interest from clients in sustainable strategy has gone from pretty much a niche, some Nordic pension plans, some Dutch players, an occasional like millennial investor uh, to mainstream. The number one topic on every client segment's lips is talk to me about what you're doing in sustainable investing. Um, to give you an example, this year, 20 to 25% of the firm BlackRock's overall revenue growth organic revenue growth is coming from sustainable strategies. So that is a big transformation. So it used to be, again, a pocket discussion in various places. It's now spreading everywhere. Um, and that is, uh, frankly, a bit of a surprise. It's the biggest, and I hear that, we hear that from clients everywhere in the world. Um, where is it most advanced? Well, of course, it's most advanced in pension plans in Canada, in, the, in Northern Europe. Uh, but actually, again, you're seeing really everywhere sustainable investing, even in places that you'd be least expected, like for example, Texas and Oklahoma plans or the Gulf are asking questions at least because they know that they actually need to grapple with these forces. And one of the big messages I'd leave for everyone is that finance as a category is way behind the real economy. Finance talks big relative to these other uh, sectors. But when you look at the substance, um, what, we, what we've found is that when we look around, it's places like consumer goods and in oil and gas, companies that have been wrestling with sustainability for a lot longer have much more articulated plans and, and than anybody in, us in, in finance. The great thing for us is that makes it a lot easier for us to achieve our objective, which is to be by far the far and away leader as the number one uh, player in sustainable investing and sustainable finance. But we have so much to learn from the real economy players. And if we come back to the indexing side, how do you see those index players, um, the, the clients you have who are investing against an index, what are, what are some of the more creative ways that they're incorporating sustainability um, into their approaches, since obviously it's a little bit different decision, obviously, than, a, than an active uh, decision? So I actually think the distinctions between index and alpha as with broad investing are much less important than they are to the theologians within asset managers. Um, in indexing, what we're seeing is clients, that's the first place they're adopting sustainable strategies. So clients are saying, I'll switch out of a state. What their big clients are doing generally, the vast majority of clients who are investing in sustainable investing. So what they're doing is they're stepping back and saying, I wanna invest like I did before. Can you let me do it in a sustainably oriented way? I like my broad asset allocation. I like US equities, but can you let me do it in a sustainable way? So I'll take an example of an official institution, a central bank in Europe, that recently switched a billion dollars out of a traditional broad US equity mandate into a sustainable strategy. That's where we're seeing the shift. That shift has gone, just to give you a sense, our iShares and index mutual funds business with sustainable orientation. Two and a half years ago, it was $8 billion. It is now 80 
$1.80 billion. That's in two and a half years. So a lot of the hottest action is actually happening with those index players. And the index players are all stumbling over each other to develop ESG-oriented versions of their traditional benchmarks. Um, and so we're working with them on both designing, but then also commercializing and bringing to the clients those strategies that allow clients to actually kind of do investment process as they did before in equities and fixing and in cash, but now do it in a way that reflects their values or captures what's even more powerful, captures more value. And you mentioned fixed income. Are you seeing the same trend coming in fixed income? Is it behind? Is it is it similar? Uh, what 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 should we expect to see on the fixed income side when it comes to sustainability? Historically, when people have thought about sustainable investing, they've thought about equities. It's kind of where the mind has gone. Remember, indexing as a category is so much more been developed in equities than it is in fixed income. So people have generally their minds have gone to equities first. But if you think about it bonds are much larger as a percentage of the capital markets. And so whether it's financing of emerging market comp countries, companies of any sort, and maybe one day developed countries and having ESG criteria on developed countries, we, um, what we're seeing is actually, it's like wide open terrain. We are absolutely seeing big fast pickup from clients, but it's off a very small base because the vast majority today is around equities, but cash, Cash within the world of bonds might be a surprise. We launched a cash product called Leaf. It is now both in US and Europe, uh, just basically just sustainable orientation in the corporates in the portfolio. It's now well over $10 billion. Uh, again, in, even just in cash. Private markets, a huge category as well. Um, it's all coming um, uh, in, across asset classes. Bonds, just like in indexing, are a little bit behind equities. And of course, we're sitting here talking in the midst of a global pandemic. And you mentioned a minute ago a little bit on the sustainability to some people being sustainability broadly, some people means climate. How, how about the social side or the, you know, the, the sort of pandemic induced side? How are you all thinking about sustainability as it, as it applies to, to people rather than planet? So ESG, uh, environmental social governance, the most, the place where the greatest rigor has been applied and probably the most focus has been on the E and especially around climate risk and to a lesser extent biodiversity risks. In the S, this is a very, very wide uh, spectrum of concerns. And so clients this year, uh, whether it be Black Lives Matter in the United States or pandemic uh, concerns all over the world have become absolutely, and investors much more focused on S, but you have to break S up. S is not a uniform thing. We all kind of know what we mean by climate risk. Um, and I can actually give you complicated models that will give you a sense of how your portfolio will perform over 30 years. In S land, I need to start off by, what do you mean by S? And so what I would say is we're seeing clients increasingly break down S into specific risk concerns and saying, let me understand those concerns. What we found is, by, by the way, the most far powerful ESG uh, factor, um, at least in the S world, uh, this year has been employee engagement. How do you treat your employees, whether measured by um, objective statistics like attrition or retention, but also simply social media reports? That's actually been a very powerful signal for understanding which companies would outperform during the pandemic. But broadly, you know, in Denmark, the top concern from pension plans is are your, you, the asset manager, are you paying your taxes properly in all the jurisdictions? That's not really on the lips of most other 
S investors. They're more concerned, for example, about racial equity in companies. So it's really all over the place. And I think you have to go down the next level of analysis, break it apart and say, what risk factor are you really talking about when you say S? And if we turn to BlackRock yourself as an organization, rather than just as a you know, manager of, of, of client assets, as you said, how are you all thinking about the BlackRock itself responding to these ESNG concerns? Are there changes going on um, that you can talk about? Well, by far the dominant uh, push in our firm has been reshifting our entire strategy around sustainable offerings and analytics to all of our clients. So that's a huge shift that's underway um, and it's externally oriented, which of course gives the most energy in any commercial enterprise that's externally oriented. Um, within the organization, and we were already were carbon zero, uh, net zero on everything that we directly touch. Um, so that was kind of behind us. Uh, the big concern, big change this year has been, and on the pandemic, uh, as well, we gave uh, what for us is a huge portion of our uh, philanthropy. We gave $50 million to support COVID relief, which for us is gigantic because the size of it, we're, we may sound like a big firm, we're actually kind of a small firm. Um, and we actually gave um, a, about 10% of our overall endowment away on, on COVID as, as a priority in the middle of the March, April crisis around the world. The big place that's created the most soul searching for the organization is around uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion around blacks and to a lesser extent Latinos in the United States and actually all over the world, particularly in the UK. These are the two places where we've had the most internal dialogue and discussion. Um, we like almost every other financial services firm, like almost every company, have an underrepresentation, particularly of blacks in senior roles. Um, and um, this has shown a spotlight on long built problems that um, we have to commit ourselves with huge energy to fixing over the long haul. So that's been a huge part of the dialogue inside the firm uh, and of our energies. And an enormous fraction of our executive committee time is, is applied to exactly what I just talked about. Basic incorporation, inclusion of more blacks and Hispanics in the US and where we can talk about it legally uh, in other markets. Well, and, and it's so, I think, important for us, you were talking about companies that are future oriented and really, you know, getting ready for the for the long run. It's it's such an important part of whether it's climate or some of the social issues. It's it, it is about it's about the long term. And um, I think we've all you know realized how, how much those come together. Um, coming back to your point on social media and the data that you've gathered there, there's obviously a lot of work going on in many places around corporate reporting on um, more ESG or, or non-traditional metrics. Um, you've already built you know, your Aladdin system, you're, you're using social media and so on. How, how important do you think it is for companies to get um, those disclosures right and to sort of uh, take away some of the pain points of, of disclosure there? Or, do, or have, have the investors sort of moved beyond it in almost in some way because you're getting so much data um, from alternative sources? We, we really need companies of all stripes uh, to be uh, disclosing uh, their own metrics that we can actually track over time, uh, both in um, around the whole range of ESG risks. And uh, we particularly favor the SASB and TCFD frameworks uh, as being 
a way that we can look across companies in particular within sectors and understand what's happening. But I think that actually when you talk to companies, the number one cry they have is, could you please have fewer people asking us for disparate approaches, which we're totally sympathetic with. And we're very pleased with the recent uh, announcement by a number of kind of rule setting bodies to set a plan of converging a set of standards. Uh, we think the IFRS uh, is probably the most likely um, framework that will, or, or body of, of, of rules to help bring it all together. Um, but pending that, we need SASB and TCFD disclosures. Uh, in addition to what we pick up about companies on, in social media and on satellite photographs and everything like that, um, but we, but companies' disclosures themselves help to focus, make clear management attention on those problems. I can tell you at BlackRock, we are doing our own, our own TCFD disclosure in the near future, and it's getting a lot of attention. We're talking about it at the executive committee, we're focused on things that maybe won't look as great as we might want them to possibly look, and what do we do about that? Not about whether we disclose, but whether we act on it. And our experience has been that, you know, if you shine all, actually it's not ours experience, it's a guy named Galileo said it. You know, if, if you want to, manage something, you need to measure it. Yeah, great. Um, all right, let's 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 talk a little bit about stewardship. I mean, one of the things that you all do as a, as a big um, asset manager is um, work with many, many companies on a range of issues. And so you have companies that you're invested in, uh, thousands of them, and you also have this broad range of clients. So whether they're around the world or different kinds of investors, and sometimes you're the you're the connection point, if you will, between all of those interests and all of those com companies. So how do you how do you think about um, aligning? How do you pick? Because it seems like you're you know from the outside it looks like BlackRock is always getting someone saying you should focus on this issue or that issue or the other issue, and and there are a lot of issues in a lot of companies. So so how, how do you choose? You have to start with the proposition that not only can you not please all the people all the time, you may not please any of the people any of the time. You have to start off with an idea of like your goal is to generate long-term returns for your clients using their money, it's not our money, and press companies on issues where they can, by greater, greater scrutiny, or in some cases, board changes or management changes, perform better for our shareholders long-term. That has to be the lodestar. If you go, go off of that, you are lost. So all of our uh, work with companies is oriented around how do we make more money for our clients long-term? And the long-term is really key because whether you call it enlightened self-interest or being long-term greedy, it is fundamentally our view that we certainly by law, but also by conviction, we can only do things that are in the interest of our clients long-term. If it's not in our clients' long-term interest, we can't possibly fix it as a private actor. So that's the lens through which we look at everything uh, that we, we, as we invest in companies. What that means is um, we have a set of priorities. Uh, in Q2 of this year was how, how are you treating your employees during COVID? Um, the, probably the biggest hardy perennial for us will be questions around climate risk and how companies are managing that risk. Um, and what is their strategy for dealing with a world that either is gonna get 
hotter and hotter due to lack of action, or is just going to get hotter due to a lot of action. So we'll see. Um, and the, 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 we probe and press uh, based on, again, the question of, is this company prepared and organizing consistent and what its strategy has, particularly in light of these ESG risks? So you've talked uh, some about governance, you know, who's on the board and, and we, we think about what are the drivers of long-term value creation. Governance is, is obviously at the top of the list. Um, the dialogue between investors and companies is, is right there. Uh, and then we also think a lot about incentives. You know, what is driving, what are people paid to do? Are they paid to be long-term? Are they paid to be short-term? So how do you think about engaging with companies on compensation or remuneration around the world? Um, it's increasingly an area that people are, uh, again, very different views uh, in different countries, um, but ones that um, the, the big shareholders uh, are, are, are often being asked to opine on. It comes back to the same basic question. Is this compensation plan aligned with the long-term interests of the stakeholders in the company? Most predominantly the shareholders, but keeping an eye on the other stakeholders, which in our view, long-term will affect the shareholders. So we don't take a particular view on the level of compensation. That's not our primary focus, um, but we are concerned with our executives compensated in a way that encourages them to deliver a long-term performance, again, with an eye to all stakeholders um, uh, over a, a multi-year horizon. And with that, where, you can, where companies can fall up to the, into the wayside is metrics and me measures that disconnect from that long-term value creation. So if it's just about uh, one, one high-profile case, the company had reinvented the strategy but kept the old metrics. Uh, and like, that's kind of the exact opposite of what you're supposed to do. Uh, so you have to have metrics and measures in a framework we can follow as to why um, companies that, why you're paying the companies, why companies are paying the executives in the way they are. Having sat on a public board that actually has dealt with external criticism, I totally get and actually have felt the sense that the outside world didn't understand us. Then the obligation is really on the company to articulate that better. Um, and explain why we're compensating people and against what metrics. So I have, this may go back to your point of you can't make everybody happy all the time, but I have heard people both say, you don't have enough resources to evaluate all these companies that you interact with. And on the other hand, you have too much influence and you're to engage with all these companies. So how, how do you um, how do you respond to sort of both, both ends of that? You just, uh, you know, constantly trying to, to keep your keep your eye on uh, that long-term value? Well, when it comes to whether we have enough resources, too much resources, uh, you got to start off with like, what's in the long-term interest of the shareholders, uh, the investors who we are serving? The um, um, Our task is, if you really think about it, most companies in a given year do not have highly controversial things going on. Uh, so start off with that. Uh, BlackRock, for example, happily as an, as an Inc, has not actually had controversial shareholder proposals. Uh, there's very little that actually that we've had to deal with. And so our stewardship team, which obviously doesn't vote BlackRock, but other stewardship teams, they honestly wouldn't have a lot to say. Uh, occasionally some things come up, but it doesn't require huge energy. Sometimes you need a lot of energy. So we've staffed in a way to actually try to cover that all over the world. We are expanding our staff, particularly in markets where we haven't traditionally had people 
Latin America, Australia, China, where we actually have uh, maybe not huge businesses, but we have clients around the world who do invest in those regions and who want us to actually have a real presence there. That's an area we're growing. We use a lot of data and a lot of technology, including from vendors. Um, and where we need to, we add people. But the number of people we need to add isn't really the right metric. The right metric is, are we getting the job done? How many engagements we have we done? And if you look, you'll see two things happening. One is a dramatic uptick at BlackRock in our actively voting. And this is, I think, the most powerful one, uh, voting against directors. Uh, that freaks, having, if you've been a public company director, being a voted against kind of would freak you out or at least having a peer get or a partner get voted against. So that's a really strong pressure that we bring. And in our experience, when we do something like that, actually it leads to rapid change. So that's one. Uh, the second is uh, we will be getting more involved in stewardship, uh, sorry, shareholder proposals. And by, we have historically taken a very conservative posture. Um, we are getting more engaged in having a more forward looking embracing approach to proposals, um, which as that gets formulated, we'll be announcing. So we've seen a lot of change in the last, obviously this year, but also the last few years. We've been working on some of this and tracking some of the changes. And we see obviously the rise in indexing, the, the shift to um, capital asset light business models rather than some of the obviously heavier things, the rise of the investors in China and other places. If we were having this conversation in you know, three or four or five years, what do you think are going to be the big that the big changes, this rise in sustainability investing may obviously continue. What else should we be looking for on the horizon as we think, you know, perhaps five or 10 years out? So, so Sarah, I take your question is really is, how are the financial markets going to look different in five to 10 years? What will be the, the structure? Obviously not prices, but for the, for the question of how the structure is going to change, I think it's actually fairly clear. Two big changes. One, you're going to see sustainable investing become much, much larger, much larger. We set out a goal at the beginning of this year of aiming for a trillion dollars in sustainable assets by the end of the decade. I think we're going to, we, we, we under, under promised. I think we're going to raise that promise because we see client interest at a level I've never seen in my career on anything. Second, um, maybe the growth of indexing in the 80s and the 70s is a similar parallel, something like that. Um, and then second is the rise of China. Right now, China is on the periphery of clients' investment portfolios. In equity space, it typically shows up through an EM mandate. Um, I would argue that in 2020, 25, 2030, the idea of having China, the second largest financial market in the world, show up as a subpart of a category invented 35 years ago to describe basically poor countries doesn't really actually make any sense anymore. So China is going to become a much more prominent part of portfolios and equities and in bonds. In bonds, we are seeing intense demand from clients to have bonds, Chinese bonds in their portfolio. What that all is gonna mean is that having a view on chi the Chinese financial markets and actually particularly around ESG risk factors in the Chinese financial markets is gonna become more and more important. That's gonna be enhanced by political tensions between China, the United States and the rest of the developed world. But it's also simply just be with the place where the greatest lack of transparency and the need for much more clarity is going to be a constant cry from our clients, global clients around the world, investing in China. 
And one of the things we've seen in China, at least to date, is that obviously many of the companies there have a very, very long-term orientation, family companies and so on, but that the stock market themselves, the stock market investors tend to be very, very short-term. How do you um, how do you either evolve that or, or how do you kind of square that circle that you've got for this long-term mindset and um, and markets that trade trade so dramatically rather than having the sort of long-term um, wealth building in the markets that we see uh, in many countries. Is that just a matter of time? So if you look at China today, the Chinese financial markets are, remind me of Alice through the looking glass. Everything that you expect in the US or Europe or Japan will be the opposite in China. Derivatives trading, dominated by retail. Equity trading, dominated by retail. So that leads to a level of volatility uh, and a set of market practices that are really quite different than anywhere else in the world. That's gonna change. The Chinese financial authorities have made it very clear that they want, and this is part of the reason they're inviting foreign players into China, is they want those foreign players and the Chinese domestic players to develop a ecosystem that is much more institutional, much more calm, less built on punters. Um, and actually what I would say is that for the long-term investor, look, if you're a long-term investor going into China, if you are patient, you should actually outperform noisy retail investors who are trading in and out. Um, we have some excellent uh, quantitative strategies that work really well in China, but it's largely about the fact that there's a lot of noise traders in those markets. And if you're a long-term patient investor, you should be able to generate significant alpha in those markets, um, or at least benefit over the long haul from the growth of the Chinese economy without worrying a lot about the short term. Uh, all that said, um, it is still a fairly, um, the one part that is emerging market around China from an external perspective is the market infrastructure. Um, the market practices are still in development. That's part of the reason why they're asking, they being the Chinese authorities, are asking foreign players to come in, help bring foreign technology and know-how Less so capital, although that's relevant, more about actually helping to raise the bar in the Chinese markets and ultimately make those markets more efficient and help the Chinese figure out how they can save out of what is a retirement crisis that is dramatic by American standards. Yeah, that's a uh, that's a big issue in a lot of countries, but uh, you know that's a, that's a critical issue there. So as we think about the long term, thinking about building savings, thinking about sustainability, thinking about the rise of China, um, it's it sounds like an exciting uh, it sounds like an exciting place to be over the next five to ten years. It's not getting any uh, calmer. That's uh, that's for sure. You'll you'll have plenty to do. We see China as probably the it's really the only place in the world where we see dramatic expansion opportunities for us and for our competitors. And again, the reason is the Chinese have made a decision to open their capital account and our clients globally want to be part of that. They see the diversification benefits of owning Chinese exposures. They see they want to participate in the growth of the second largest financial market, which by the way, pretty soon could be the first. Um, and they want to be part of that. Yeah. 
Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, having this perspective into you know, your thinking and, and sort of planning for the future is, is really helpful for us. Obviously, as you well know, at FCLT, we are trying to focus on the long-term, get ahead of it, be future-oriented, think about where um, the, the financial markets are going and how they can um, evolve to really support a long-term sustainable economy. Um, and we really appreciate your, your time and support in, in that effort. Well, Sarah, it's been a great honor, and thank you to everybody at FCLT uh, for helping to, uh, over the long haul, advance the case for the long term. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Going Long with FCLT Global. Be sure to hit subscribe to get new episodes every other Monday. To learn more, visit our website at fcltglobal.org.